What's your problem? What's your solution? This is an interview series about making the world a better place. The heart of the Financial Center of Amsterdam is the location of an inspiring initiative, Circle. Circle is an event space and restaurant based on the circular economy. An economy without waste and focused on preservation. Gunther Pauli has been an environmental entrepreneur, thinker and author for three decades. He set zero emissions as the target for industry already in the 1990s. Regeneration is an inspiring solution beyond sustainability. Gunther Pauli is a visionary for a vibrant planet. Welcome to Camp Solutions. Gunther, you were an early environmental entrepreneur when you worked as a chief executive of Ecover, the sustainable soap company in Belgium. I think right there in your early part of your career, you learned an important lesson about sustainability. Can you tell me about that? So the first lesson that I learned as an entrepreneur was that, wow, I can actually make a much bigger difference as the producer of soap than as a publisher of a book. We saw clearly that people were reading this and didn't know how to translate into action. And I had no experience in manufacturing and had no experience in fast-moving consumer goods. But to my great surprise, it was relatively easy to get into action. And the bold decision was that I was going to construct the first ecological factory. My original interest was not in the product, but in how do we produce the system of manufacturing. I had a lot of people who saw the systemic approach to manufacturing. And of course, I had this label, biodegradable. I even claimed that my factory was biodegradable. But then I realized that this biodegradability depended on palm oil, and I became the largest importer of palm oil for detergents from Indonesia, which then was starting to cut down the forests. We thought that sustainability was biodegradability. Absolutely yeah. not. You're perfectly 100% biodegradable, 99.9% .9 better than the competition on the market, in parentheses, but you destroy the rainforest. Yeah. And that is where my third lesson came. At that point, you have to make ethical decisions. Because according to the financial results, I should continue. I was making good money. Yeah. But from, from uh, a young father who just had his second son, uh, what through my mind went the idea that how am I going to defend myself when my kids are 20 years and they're asking me, Dad, why did you continue doing the thing that is destroying the rainforest, I felt I would not be able to look in their eyes. And so the combination of the entrepreneurship with the discovery of a standard with, of course, uh, the imposition on the entrepreneur to really live up to the highest standards and therefore be someone who is capable of blending ethics as one of the key decision factors in the strategy for business. The next step after Ecover was um, ZERI, that is the Zero Emissions Research Initiative. You launched that, you started that from Japan in, I think, 94, which is no, 25 years ago now. So what inspired you to, to, to work on zero emissions at that early stage? I saw the curves going up. And it was clear that reducing was not good enough. I mean, the big title, reduce, uh, recycle. No, 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 we can't reduce. We have to stop and stopping means zero. And, and, and it was a very strong statement. So I wrote an article about it in 1991 that the new standard for business was zero. But I built the logic on very widely spread common sense in business. 
I mean, if I want to target a reduction of accidents in the factory, that's not good enough. It's zero accidents. Yes. I mean, how can I say if I have 100,000 employees that I tolerate a 0.5% uh, accident rate? Yes. That is impossible. Mm -hmm. The insurance will cancel their policy with me. Right. And so I also knew that the management logic is total quality, TQM. Yes. And so I actually found that within the management world, saying zero is something perfectly acceptable, actually, it's the language management was talking. The change agent was not going to be a multilateral initiative, was not making United Nations agreements, and it was very clear to me that we would never, could never expect these governments to agree on a standard which for business is obvious. So, out of that network that kept growing and, and now includes hundreds of scientists around the world and entrepreneurs, is there one lesson that stands out that you have learned about climate change and global warming and, and whatever the most important challenges of humanity today are? The biggest lesson I learned is was not at all in the content of climate change, but how to work on the subject in a network. So I realized that there was a breakdown of the barriers between the entrepreneur and the scientist. Yeah. And that originally I thought was going to be the change maker in the whole debate, well, that was totally wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Americans and the Europeans had basically agreed it's going to be cap and trade. We're going to make two centers of carbon trading in the world, New York and London, and uh, forget about the rest. And so that was, in the end of the day, my biggest lesson, is that um, I didn't believe in the multilateral. I was drawn into it and learned how the politics came behind. So that lesson because it was a huge frustration. Science and business agrees and politicians overrule. Yeah. And overrule, not by majority decision, but by two superpowers to, to, to agree that this is not what we're gonna do. I think that has made me so stubborn and also so dedicated that I had to put you know, the proof on the table that these multilateral agreements yes. dealt in the back room by a few politicians cannot stand up against the long-term clear vision of entrepreneurs and scientists from around the world to get going anyway. So, if we talk about sustainability in, in, you know, in, in political circles, but even in business, it is all somehow to preserve whatever we have. That's the focus. Um, at the same time, we need economic growth and, and we need to create jobs. And, and then we need to use resources again. And so there is always seems to be a competing between these two challenges. How do you look at that dilemma? I don't think it's a dilemma at all. It's only a dilemma when you're in the wrong business model. I mean, if your business model says you have to have economies of scale, you have to produce more of the same, standardize, you robotize. And then, of course, in addition, uh, uh, you will simply have one competence in the company that you consider a core competence. Yeah. So if you're with a core business and a core competence on economies of scale, supply chain, just in time, leveraging your assets to grow, going into mergers and acquisitions, well, in that case, it's not going to work. It's absolutely right. One is opposite to the other. But if you change your business model, mm -hmm. where you say, I will work with what is locally available, I'm going to focus on responding to local needs, basic needs of nature and of people, and I will focus on generating value added, 
At once you're freed of this, uh, this uh, corset, this straitjacket that forces you to do more of the same all the time. And any innovation you introduce is subjected to what the supply chain allows you to do. So, as someone who's created companies, I know how to go from zero to 100 to 1,000. Uh, I've done it several times. And then with all our 200 initiatives we have in the meantime, we have repeated multiple times that this is how we go yeah. from small scale to bigger scale yes. to scope. You don't keep on growing on that famous curve. You at some point say, now I have the ideal size, I start repeating. It's not a franchise. It's that you adjust each time to the local conditions. Under these conditions, since your goal is to have zero emissions, with value added, you start to create so much more value that actually you can perfectly outcompete the globalization model and you do not have the challenge that you need more, always more from the earth to respond to the needs. You learn how to do much more to respond to everyone's needs without asking nature to do more. Can you give me an example of that? What, how would that look like in, in, in a smaller scale economy? What is one of your projects? Our flagship project with which we started uh, 24 years ago now is of course the famous cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. I mean, you drink a cup of coffee and very people stop and think about the fact that what we ingest in the body yeah. is only 0.2%. 99.8% is just not used. And at best, we're composting. But this doesn't make any sense. Uh, la cascara, the, the shell of the coffee bean, is full of antioxidants. It's actually one of the richest antioxidants in the world, and we're composting. Yeah. I mean, and that's the best solution we have. And of course, the bean, we roast, uh, toast, uh, grind, brew, and we throw uh, the solids away because we only drink uh, three grams in a cup of coffee. So if you look at that, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you have millions of tons of coffee yeah. consumed around the world, and we do 0.2%. So I can do, theoretically, 500 times better. Therefore, once you realize that you can go from a 0.2% to 100% material use, you can grow the economy and respond to people's needs. So concretely, what do we do? First of all, take the coffee. The coffee is hot. The coffee has been sterilized because it's with 100 degrees water. Should be a little bit lower, but more or less. Second, that means you have an ideal substrate for mushrooms. You farm a mushroom. The mushroom enriches the antioxidants with amino acids. It means you get a pretty darn good food. Now, who's going to eat it? Not you and me, but that's great for the chickens. So we're feeding the chickens. Now, we can feed the chickens with the waste of the coffee, which is the waste of the mushroom. And the chickens will give me eggs. So at once, I have an economy with truly the imported coffee. I can have coffee. I can have mushrooms, I can have chicken, and I have eggs. And that was the initial start of our drive to demonstrate that we don't have to ask the Earth to do more. We can do so much more what the Earth is doing. We were very successful. We have more than 5,000 of these little farms on coffee and chickens and, and mushrooms around the world. 25 years later, next year, 2019, we are launching large-scale solid coffee bar. It's called the coffee bar. And what we do is we take the complete coffee bean, 
which of course has to be organic. Yeah. And of course it has to be inside the forest because it has to grow in a ca under a canopy. And, and so we take a lot of the principles of agroecology. It's just a simple basis from which we start. But now we take the bean, the whole bean, we dry it in the sun, we separate the cascara from the coffee bean, and now we process them and we add 30% uh, or a little bit more uh, cacao butter. Uh, we add a pinch of uh, sugar and a tiny bit of salt and we make the solid coffee bar. Yep. That means we use on the farm 100%. We don't oblige the farmer to separate with using a lot of water. 10 grams of that solid coffee bar has 50 milligrams of caffeine. That means we have as much caffeine as Red Bull. That means we're a millennium product. And 10 grams sold at the same price as Red Bull means you're having $100,000 per ton of coffee. <gasps> what? Uh, yeah. The farmer is normally only getting 600 for a normal coffee, 800 if it's organic and fair trade. Yeah. And so at once you completely change the logic, your cake gets bigger, but it's not that we're over-consuming, we're just giving value to 100% of the coffee bean. I mean, you don't have to be an extraordinary mathematician nor MBA to realize that you're changing the market for the farmer. Yeah. For that price, any farmer does whatever you want him to do. But once you let people go free on that, and that's thanks to the 5,000 little enterprises where everyone started thinking about how can I get more value out of this, yes. it's an unstoppable process. Yeah. You let the genie out of the bottle. We think that within one generation, we will go back to 60, 70 million coffee farmers. We were at 50 million, we're now at 25 million. Globalization had squeezed out the farmer and only went for the most productive on the 0.2%. I mean, can you see how, how strange our economy yeah, works? Yeah. We believe that we have to focus on the productivity of the 0.2%. And we translate that into a productivity per kilo per hectare. And then when you start making our calculations, of course, we're doing 10,000 times better. Yeah. And we have material use, we have a happy farmer, we have healthcare, we have good schooling locally, we build on the ecotourism, and we have a lot of other initiatives building around it. And as a result, Yurian, we are succeeding in transforming the economy. Once people get into that, I mean, they want to be entrepreneurs and they want to change the world. Back to the, the global warming debate. We can't basically open the newspaper on a daily basis without seeing a new report uh, with dire warnings. But what is an inspiring response to that deluge of, of bad news? If you accept the standard that zero emissions is the starting point, then you simply decide not to talk about it anymore. We've heard these warnings now for 30 years. Yeah. The Club of Rome added another 20 years of warnings before that. And what have we done? Zero. It's not zero emissions, it's zero action. True action. That is the response we need. We need that portfolio of opportunities of doing where you can make people enthusiastic about it all. And then in the end, uh, you say, oh, and, and by the way, it's zero emissions. Yeah. That's it. 
finish the debate. Don't talk about it anymore. Get the people inspired by what they can do on the ground. So if I can take all the rotting out of the system, because we know that every city in Europe is just rotting its biomass away, waste from the kitchen, waste from supermarkets, it's all just rotting away, creating methane. If we just turn all of that into a replenishment of the soil, and you use a one-time use bioplastic, so you can take the plastic and the biomass together, and you compost it, you ferment it, uh, you do everything that science tells you you can do, then you will cut your emissions at enormous speed. How come we don't do it? Because most of the people do, do it still within the old business model. Yeah. The globalization, the centralization, the economies of scale. And as long as you stay in that logic, you will not get out of the emissions trap. We need to therefore go for this clear decentralization of uh, any initiative. That's why we say the new economy is local first. You only use what you locally have. And of course, in New York, that may be different than when you're in Rotterdam. Um, it may be different when you're in Hufalise in Belgium. Of course, it's going to be different. And, and therefore, if you take the principle local, you create opportunities for businesses that will, by design, have zero emissions. Throughout history, there's always been a story that the end of times was near. There's, that is always, every, every episode in history, you see that coming back. Today, it's global warming. But of course, we also know that we're still here. I mean, all these other moments in history, I mean, somehow we, we came through. And, and that's not to say that we didn't lose a lot of people, uh, and wars. And so, you know, it seems that we need, we're kind of addicted to giving ourselves uh, that bad outcome. But Jurian, we are we're very strange people. <laughs> strange people because when we go to the doctor and the doctor tells us you have lung cancer, then I stop smoking the next day. Strange. Yeah. Why didn't you do it uh, 10, 20 years earlier? Yeah. If I come in front of an audience, though, and I give them just five or six of the cases we're working on, I have 100 people you know, behind me saying that we want to do that. And yeah. I'm saying, just do it. And then the shock at the beginning. And then, of course, only two or three have that emotional strength to say, Actually I'm going to do it. Do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. The majority regresses in a state of inaction because they're saying, I didn't study for it, I don't have the capital. One finds always the yes, but. We have to say yes, and. Now, the drama we have with the present crisis is, is, is that people don't realize that climate change is the result of a problem. Yeah. Climate change is not a problem. It's the business model we've created. Yeah. It's the economic model we have created. Where not only the very rich get much, much richer, but at the same time, we are not caring about distribution of wealth anymore. We are not caring about distribution of living chances to all biodiversity. Yeah. I mean, we don't share. We are not compassionate. And... Um, that, to me, is one of the key problems, is climate change is considered a problem, but it is the result of a much deeper societal problem. So we need to generate value, as you have been saying, to basically outcompete in a very different way, not in, in economies of skills way, but in, in generating value way. But let's, let's talk solutions. So we just we're talking about paper. Paper is not a response to plastic. We want to get rid of plastic, yes, but to replace plastic with paper is not a, a good solution because, as you already explained, 
paper is produced in an unhealthy, environmentally unfriendly ways. Of course. So, but what is a response to plastic? So when you observe a piece of land that has really been deteriorating because we mine the carbon from the soil, uh, we, we put monocultures with chemicals for decades in the same soil, and yeah, we did a bit of rotation, etc. But we've basically mined the carbon out of our soils. But in these situations, nature comes with an answer. And we have to observe that answer. And that answer, amongst others, is a thistle. You know, the cardoon, the thistle, which we consider a weed. Now, very few people realize that around Europe, we have uh, 20 million hectares of weed growing. Not the one you smoke, the one that doesn't go with your crop. And the European Union, like many other governments, forces governments to kill that weed with a product called glyphosates. I mean, I have to congratulate the people in charge of lobbying for glyphosates because they were able to force <laughs> consumption all around the world. So my main response to plastics is that I'm asking the people to just go back to freshman class, university, and polymers. And how do you make a polymer? Well, if you have an oil, you can turn it into an acid. If you have a cellulose, you have a sugar. A sugar, you can turn into an alcohol. Everyone can follow that with minimum education. If you have an alcohol and you have an acid, you have a monomer. Monomers, you put together, you have a polymer. As simple as that. So the answer is not is it paper versus plastic versus... No, 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 no. What is nature providing us in abundance? Yes. I mean, that's all we got to do. Look around. Yep. Now, a rainforest is able to produce 500 tons of biomass per year. And unfortunately, we're only interested in the tree. <laughs> but the rest we discard. Fields that are denuded and exposed to the sun is basically one seed in Europe that goes very well, and it's called exactly the cardoon. Now, cardoon has the cellulose, and it has an oil. And it costs money to get rid of it. So wouldn't it be a logical business model to harvest cardoon, which you don't have to plant, don't have to irrigate, don't have to put herbicides, no pesticides, no genetics needed, nothing at all, just get the cardoon yes. for free, cost of harvesting, which I think is a quite a competitive proposal, and then transform the different components of the cardoon into the new polymers for cosmetics. Uh, you can create the lubricants, which today are all synthetic for your agricultural equipment. You can start using uh, the bacterial enzymes to make goat cheese. You can start, I mean, you just, this is generosity of nature, it's abundance. So why is it that we are always looking for products that are in scarcity and that the products that are in abundance... We call them weeds. We call them case. weeds. Yeah. We kill them. <laughs> yes. We eliminate them. We put them on landfills. Yeah. I mean, isn't there something wrong in our cultural approach to this innate desire to exploit things that are scarce? Yeah. And it's clear that if you have the capacity to take what is locally available, others consider it a problem, you consider it an opportunity, you're transforming the economy. So as a result, we're realizing that instead of sucking the cash out of the system, we are making sure that this, the system generates more cash. And since it's accompanied by more products, it's non-inflationary. Yeah.
How does that work? And why is it not so a pleasure? If you, if you have more cash in the local economy, but there is not more product in the local economy, yeah, then that difference, you get inflation. Yeah. Inflation is something that we have to protect people from in a democracy. Because inflation reduces your purchasing yes. power with numbers only. And therefore, when you have your higher value generated, you must make certain you have more offer of local products so that additional cash is indeed, again, being consumed locally yeah. and doesn't leave. That's your multiplier. Are you optimistic about the future and the challenge of climate change and global warming? So today, I'm very pessimistic that any solution will ever come forth from a COP meeting. Very pessimistic. Actually, I don't think it can at all contribute except for continuing the awareness that the problem is, is getting worse. But what I am going, getting extremely optimistic about is provided we are prepared to transform and not find a solution. If we're prepared to transform, then I see incredible opportunities to go much faster than anyone would imagine today. Let me say that the last three years, with all the errors and learning processes we all go through, but the last three years is the first time, actually, that I see uh, scaling and speeding up towards solutions of what we call abundance. And to me, that is how we mobilize people. Because when I talk to people and their eyes, they're like, what? This is possible. Yeah. And this scale? Can you move coffee from $800 a ton to $100,000 a ton? Have you done this? Yes. People get rather fascinated that someone says, so what? Let's focus on all our energy, on getting the results with speed and with scale. In the last three years, the biggest lesson is that more and more capital is ready to follow. Now, it is a very specific type of capital. It's what we call legacy investors. Now, if today you want to leave legacy at Harvard University, you have to give $500 million and you put your name in a building that you pay for as well. Um, now, people are ready for a bit more sensible legacy than a building and a name. And, and I think that is where people are going to. We will create legacy thanks to innovations and that legacy is going to transform society and our lives for the better. Thank you. Thank you. Preserving what we have is good. Regenerating what we lost is even better. That's the inspiring message of Gunter Pauli. This was Camp Solutions. See you next time.